Welcome to the HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. Hello and good afternoon. Um, for the next hour, we are going to make you laugh. We're going to make you cry. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that's what it says on your tickets. We will do our very, very best for you. Um, my name is Ian Payne. I am a crime reader. I'm also, um, for ITV, a newsreader, which kind of makes me a storyteller. Um, <laughs> by and large, I tell other people's stories. Um, we have with us today four master storytellers, and we're going to find out a bit more about them. We're going to find out the most strange things. Lisa Jewell, welcome. Um, Lisa, what's your favourite colour? Pale blue. Pale blue. Your favourite shape? Triangle. Triangle. Geometric, sturdy. <laughs> Do you prefer to read or write? At the moment, write, actually, okay. which is okay. tragic. <laughs> Ellie Griffiths, everybody. Ellie, um, what's your favourite colour? Yellow. <laughs> <laughs> and your favourite shape? Star-shaped. <sighs> oh, OK. Is that a shape? Yeah, star. We'll give that. Go we'll give that. that. Yeah. Do you prefer to read or write? <laughs> I actually prefer to read, I think. Vasim Khan? Uh, do you prefer numbers or letters? Uh, numbers, I think. I'm a numbers? numbers person, yeah. Ooh. Well, I, I did an accounts degree when I was young, much to my regret. But uh, <laughs> so. Okay. What's your favourite colour? Uh, blinding white light, sort of the, like the one that's being <laughs> sh sh shone on me at the moment. Yeah. I thought you were going to say white. Big cricket fan, Vasim. Big, Big cricket, cricket fan. Time. Mick, welcome. Mick Heron, everybody. Um, your favourite colour, Mick? Black. <laughs> Black. Oh, we've got the full range here, haven't we? <laughs> this could be good. Your favourite shape? Trees. I like things that are tree shaped. Oh, I didn't know we were allowed organic shapes. I don't know where they are. <laughs> tree shape. <laughs> Never had a tree shape before. Welcome to you all. Um, our storytellers, they pose, they mislead, they answer all of our questions. Who, what, why, when, where? The five W's. Or as Jackson Lamb, one of Mick's famous characters might call them the five F's. Um, prefixing each with a very effective expletive, <laughs> which we will leave out for you on this occasion. Jackson Lamb, the leader of a group of top-level undercover agents and crime solvers. He is also very, very funny. Let's give a welcome now to his creator, Mick Heron, everybody. Hello. Thank you. Uh, thanks. So Mick is a Geordie who relocated um, as a student to Oxford. His books are set in London. He's won the Ian Fleming Steel Dagger from the Crime Writers Association, described as the John le Carré of our generation. Mick, welcome. Tell us about Jackson Lamb and his team. And here you go. Their latest tale is Joe Country. Tell us what you wish about that and your creations. Can I hold the book? It might help you. You may. I'm not sure you were entirely accurate when you described them as a top-level bunch of crime-solving uh, <laughs> geniuses. Um, I write about the <coughs> also-rans of the, the Secret Service, um, who are in a place called Slough House, which is the sort of naughty step of the intelligence service. Uh, and these people are um, given lots of very, very boring jobs to do in the hope that they will resign and go away and stop making a nuisance of themselves. And to help them in this, they have a boss called Jackson Lamb, who is um, not somebody you'd particularly want to work for unless you had a large masochistic streak. <laughs> not a very nice man, but uh, 
He has hidden depths. <laughs> I haven't found out what they are yet. <laughs> They're well hidden. Yeah, yeah. Clues in the name. And in Joe Country, um, I, I have a, a reputation, well-deserved, I should say, for um, uh, killing off characters every now and then. And in this particular book, I do that kind of upfront. I do say on page two, I think it is, people are going to die in this one. But I don't tell you who they are until the end, obviously. So uh, there'll be no spoilers unless I get disappointed in audience reaction, in which case I'll spoil them for all of you by, <laughs> by telling you who it is. He's a very upfront character, Jackson Lamb. He says what he thinks. Um, but I read that you never go inside his head, was a quote that I saw from you. I wouldn't want to, really, no. I, um, mostly I write my characters from the inside out, so I'm telling you what they're thinking and what they're feeling as well as what they're doing. But with, um, with Jackson, I tend to just say what he says and what he does. Uh, because the inside of his head is not really a place I want to spend much time. But also, because if I did, there are only two ways it could go. Either he means everything he says, in which case he'd be utterly intolerable as a, as a human being, uh, or he doesn't, in which case he would cease to have any kind of dangerous edge to his character at all. Okay. We'll explore that thinking and feeling uh, a little bit later. Mick, for now, thank you very much. Interestingly, Mick um, claims not to be a storyteller. Um, we may come back to that and find out why. Um, but from Mick's undercover secret agents to somebody who could well be a double agent herself because she has two names, everybody. Um, her star character is everyone's favourite forensic archaeologist. And the latest investigation for Dr. Ruth Galloway is this, the Stone Circle. Last night, everybody, here at the festival, winner of the most recommended book at the Dead Good Reader Awards. Our congratulations. Really? Please welcome Ellie Griffiths. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Ellie also created the retro um, detectives Stevens and Mephisto and is another crime writer's dagger in the library winner. She also writes under her real name, Dominica de Rosa. Um, good enough? Yeah, 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 no, yeah. No, but it's Dominica de Rosa. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nearly. Too much. That was, yeah. <laughs> was a very successful publisher before becoming <coughs> a writer. Um, Ellie, Domenica, um, introduce any new readers to Dr. Ruth Galloway and tell us what you can about the mysteries of the Stone okay. Circle. Okay. Um, yeah, there are probably people here who work with me at HarperCollins who'd be very, very surprised to hear me described as a very successful <coughs> publisher. But uh, I, did, I did enjoy it. Um, this is The Stone Circle. It's book 11 in the Dr. Ruth Galloway series. So Ruth is a forensic archaeologist. She lives on her own in a deserted cottage on the edge of the North Norfolk coast. Uh, she is first consulted by the police when a body is found on the coast and uh, Ruth uh, goes to look at the body, um, finds it's 2,000 years old, but is in, drawn into a, the modern murder case and into a very complicated relationship with the policeman, DCI Harry Nelson. So in this book, actually, brings us right back to the landscape of the first book, The Crossing Places, right back to the North Norfolk coast. And, and somebody said in a review, well, it's called The Stone Circle because we come full circle. I hadn't thought of that, but yes, <laughs> it's called The Stone Circle because we come full circle in it. Um, and should have been your favourite shape, really, shouldn't it? It, it should have been. Yeah. Well, I was going to say triangle, but Lisa took that, so uh, I had to think on my feet. The star. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so in this book, um, Nelson starts to get letters which remind him of letters that he, he got um, in the crossing places, letters that tell him to go to the stone circle and to rescue the innocent who lies buried there. So uh, he goes off to give Ruth a ring. Uh, not a wedding ring, obviously. And yeah. the, this, um, the marshland... The liminal zone. Yeah. This is a, a theme throughout your work, and it's something that you like to explore. It is, and it, it really, the, the whole series came from, from a chance remark of my husband, who's an archaeologist, which is that marshland is, is kind of sacred, because it's neither land nor sea, but something in between. And they, they thought of it as a, um, a special place, a link to the afterlife. Neither land nor sea, neither life nor death. And that's why you get bodies buried there. And sometimes treasure and sometimes weapons. It's, it's to mark that boundary, if you like, between life and death. Fascinating. The complex <laughs> yeah. mysteries. Well, uh, Dr. Ruth Galloway unveils those complex mysteries and has her own fairly complex personal life as well, as we, we heard. Our next protagonist has a very unorthodox working life. Um, the Baby Ganesh Detective Agency is run by Inspector Chopra and his elephant sidekick, Ganesha. Yep. <laughs> Let's welcome um, his creator. Um, Bad Day at the, Vul at the Vulture Club is the latest work. Vasim Khan, everybody. Thank you. So, first, I think um, Vasim also has a double life, actually. He could be a double agent. He's a full-time writer and also a full-time, has a full-time job at the University College London at the Department of Security and Crime Sciences. Very useful. <laughs> yeah. I think the, first, no, the first thing to say is thank you for, for everybody for turning up here. What a lovely, fresh-faced and angelic-looking audience. Um, <laughs> so for those of you who don't know the series, the, the Baby Ganesh series is set in modern Mumbai, which was once Bombay. The lead character, as Ian says, is Inspector Ashwin Chopra, a very rigid and honest policeman from the Mumbai Police Service who is forced into early retirement in his late 40s. Um, and on his last day in office, he's confronted by a dead body in the first book in the series, which was uh, five books ago, and it was called The Unexpected Inheritance of Inspector Chopra. And this body is of a poor boy, a local boy, and Chopra quickly realizes that his seniors in the service don't want him to investigate this boy's death. So, like any self-respecting crime fighter, he decides to go off uh, and solve the mystery on his own. He's not quite on his own, because as Ian has uh, hinted, he on his, also on his last day in, in office, he inherits a one-year-old baby elephant. <laughs> now, I should be clear, the elephant um, doesn't sing, it doesn't talk, it doesn't fly. Um, <laughs> Chopra is a serious man, and these are serious murders and things that he's solving. Uh, what the elephant does do is allow me to add a bit of humor and charm in between the series as I explore modern India. And a lot of people ask me, um, why, why did you put, decide to put an elephant into, into a crime novel? And well, <laughs> Never. Well, let's really? Get that, let's get that, that question of, comes up, yeah? Let's get that out of the way straight away. I mean, the elephant's in the room. I mean, one, I, mean, I mean, one reason was because I loved crime fiction and I wanted to see if I could slip an elephant in without anybody noticing, which, uh, which, which isn't really possible. Uh, but the real reason is that um, although I was born and grew up in England, at the age of 23, I went to India, where my father was born, uh, to work as a management consultant for a decade. And on that very first day in office, you could say that these books were born, because I, I walked out into, uh, from what was then called Bombay International Airport, the names have changed now, into this wall of searing heat, hopped in a taxi, and 10 minutes later, we stopped at a set of traffic lights. And there was a terrific thumping on the side of the taxi, and I looked around, 
and there was this, this man, this, a very large man in a wonderful midnight blue sari, and that was my first encounter with, uh, with a eunuch. Um, you know, we don't have those kind of things in, in East London where I, where I grew up. And so I, I did what most Brits do when they're abroad and they see something slightly sort of uh, disconcerting. I just pretended it wasn't there. Um, <laughs> and instead I focused on the main road. And if you've ever been to, to, to places like India, you'll know what I'm talking about next. Because there was this great chaos of, of traffic with honking rickshaws and hooting trucks and cows and goats and dogs and this great stream of humanity in 50 shades of brown with, with no care for their own life or anybody else's. And lumbering through this chaos, they came an enormous gray Indian elephant, a sight that I'd never seen before. Uh, and you know that stayed with me so that 10 years later, when I got back to the UK and I wanted to put all of these great memories of this modern India that I'd seen into, into a book, I decided that, because I didn't think it was going to get published, I thought, you know, why not? I'll put an elephant in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> It's a fascinating character, and it's much, much more than just a device. You warm to Ganesh. It's a, an elephant in a crime novel. I, I absolutely loved it. We will return to that, I'm sure. Um, closer to home, nearer to the Elephant and Castle, and back to London. Um, let's meet our fourth guest. Every one of her novels introduces us to new characters, new storylines, new plots, new personalities, and that's something she says she particularly enjoys, the creation of those characters. Um, we are very close to the release oh, date yeah. of her latest work, The Family Upstairs. Let's welcome everybody, Lisa Jewell. Thank you. Number one bestseller, you, says, um, you say you, you always write the book you feel capable of writing at the time. I was yeah. struck by that. And you've started with Ralph's Party yeah. those years ago. and you've. Tell us about your latest work, your body of work, really, and what you can about the family My upstairs. entire body of work. I well, maybe not the time, entire but <laughs> thing. But, uh, give us a um, Yeah, no, I just... I, I, you can't second-guess the market when you're, when you're a writer. Well, you can try, but it, it leads to failure. So, yeah, I do just write the book that captures my imagination at the time, a little bit like um, Bass's Elephant. Um, this one um, was inspired by just a, something I saw fleetingly on holiday... Um, I was in Nice two summers ago, and we were in one of those posh beach club restaurants on the sand, and it had a shower block behind for the members. And we were sitting there, and they had those little jets of water puffing us to keep us cool. And I saw this woman run behind with her two children, holding them by the hand, into the shower block. And I could tell she was not supposed to be going into the shower block, that she was not a member of this posh beach club. And I just, for some reason, this just entranced me this moment. I wanted to know who the woman was. I wanted to know why she was sneaking into shower blocks. It was probably just to get the sand off her children. Um, and I just thought, I want to go home and make a story for her. Uh, so this was, and it's not, I mean, it's barely about that anymore, but that was the starting point. Um, it's actually about, um, it's about family, well, it's about three things, but it's mainly about a family in the 1980s and 1990s that live in, the, I don't know if you can see it, but there's a house, a massive house in Chelsea, uh, a mansion in Chelsea, and they're very wealthy. Um, and one day, the mother invites somebody to come and stay for the weekend. They end up staying for five years and destroy their lives. Um, and the starting point of the novel is a young girl in St Albans who's been selling kitchens for a living. She's 25 years old and she's just found out she's inherited this house with all its hideous dark secrets, including um, three dead bodies in the kitchen and her upstairs in a cot waiting to be rescued when she was 10 months old. So, yeah. <laughs> 
What a happy house. <laughs> I've got to say, it's compelling. Mm. Absolutely compelling. And, I, and I, I love the tale about the lady and the two children because that now fits yeah. brilliantly, ha having read it and gone with it. Um, Lisa, thank you very much indeed for now. Um, uh, Lisa's um, primary tools of research, is this fair to say? Um, I read it of your Google yes. and the London A to Z. Oh, not anymore. That was like <laughs> 20 years ago. Well, there you go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Google Maps now. Google Maps Google now, Maps. yeah. Google Maps. Um, the reason I mentioned A to Z, a piece of uh, advice I was given um, when I first started hosting events was A, B, C, X, Y, Z, which was always be concise and check your zip. Okay? <laughs> so whenever you're in front of an audience, that is it. We're going to cover the A to Z now. That's We're the introductions. <laughs> You've met everybody. You know a bit about their work. Um, make them laugh, make them cry is the ticket that you purchased, everybody. Um, that could sound incredibly basic, very simple, frivolous almost if we wish it to be. Let me tell you, the longer accepted version of that phrase um, is a mantra which is attributed largely to two 19th century um, contemporaries, writers and friends. Uh, they are Charles Dickens and Charles Reed. Hmm, Dickens. Weren't expecting that to come up, were you? <laughs> so it's make them laugh, make them cry, make them wait, make them feel. Okay? So we're not as frivolous as we thought. Hopefully we will make you laugh. We don't intend to try to make you cry. But I suppose it's all about how a writer makes their readers feel. We are toying with emotions. So let's get us underway. Mick. We are talking about um, influencing emotions through your characters. Gritty subject matters. Your book, though, made me laugh out loud. Mm -hmm. it, for you, is it, a, is it about controlling those emotions? Uh, I don't really think in terms of emotions, I think. I very much think about the words that I'm using. You mentioned before that I don't think of myself as a storyteller. That's, that's largely true. I mean, I do hope I am telling stories. But what matters to me is the writing of sentences and the crafting of paragraphs. I'm very much a micromanager when it comes to writing a novel. So I don't really think about the, the large picture as much as, as much as I ought to, perhaps. Uh, when I'm working, I'm simply trying to get the next sentence right. And yet, there's some very funny parts. You, you, I mean, some of the pages you could just lift off and you could see a stand-up comedian performing some of that stuff that Jackson comes out with. Well, that's to do with word choice, essentially. I mean, a lot of the lines, I hope, are funny. But they're also in, in the right context. I mean, I hope I don't throw in you know, gratuitous jokes too often. I like everything to move mm -hmm. what's happening forward uh, a bit. But the jokes are... They're reverse engineered, essentially, because I will think of a line that I think is funny, and then I try to find, find a way of putting it on the page where I'm not crowbarring it in, so it all yeah. flows quite, quite naturally. Yeah. Vaz, in, in your work, um, we, we've laughed about the elephant. You've told us about the elephant. There is a danger of being frivolous or appearing frivolous, but it's a very, very serious undertone, your aims and objectives and the message you're looking to get across in your work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I lived in India at a time when India was making this transformation from being a largely sort of rural, semi-industrial economy to the sort of global superpower that we know her as today. And so I saw the changes happening on the ground. And, you know, you've got this notion of, of, of new India, which is, you know, um, skyscrapers and shopping malls and um, 
te telephone call centers, of which you've all been the beneficiaries, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but you've still got legacy problems of old India. You know, you've got vast poverty uh, on a scale that we can't really imagine in the West. You've got caste prejudice, you've got religious intolerance that raises its head from now and again. So for me, that's, that's the kind of backdrop that I wanted to explore because, uh, I'm sorry to say, but we're a little bit guilty in the West of mythologizing India and treating it in fiction and on TV and on film as a land of swamis and snake charmers. And there's plenty of that, but you know, um, let me assure you, if you're, a, if you're a beggar in an Indian slum, life is not cheerful and uh, as much as Danny Boyle would like us to believe, it's not. Um, and Indians don't routinely get up and dance in the street in choreographed numbers as you know, <laughs> people see. Um, that doesn't really happen. But so for me, it was throughout the succession of these books is to try and bring to you and take you onto the streets of a place like Mumbai and show you what it looks like, smells like, sounds like, and feels like to be living in these kind of places and to showcase this, this modern India for you. But use that as a link to try and trace back thousands of years of history, uh, right from sort of eight, 9,000 years back to, through the various civilizations that have ruled over the country and to try and bring that into, into the book so that you get, a, you get a, a good grounding of a culture that you may not be incredibly familiar with or you may think you're familiar with, but you're not, you're not really up to speed on it as it now stands. You're appealing to a lot of emotions, a lot of senses, conveying a lot of information and, and transporting somebody yeah. into that. Yeah, into I mean, I, I get mail from all around the world because the, the books have been translated around the world. And, you know, I get mail from people. I mean, the other day I got a, a, an email from a small island off of British Columbia and they've got one tiny bookshop and they've got all my books in there and they keep writing to me. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, that's great. That's gratifying. But they, they have questions. They want to know more about the, the, the India that I'm trying to showcase in through these books. And, and you know, the elephant is a, is, is a bit of a device. It allows me to add some charm and, and humor in between these descriptions of a gritty India and the murders that, that Chopra has to solve. Uh, but overall, my, my point is not to labor and educate you, but my point is to take you on this journey with me so that you can feel these same emotions that I felt as someone who'd never seen India until the age of 23 and went there and experienced this massive sensory input uh, that you get in a place like that. And appealing to somebody's emotions, Lisa, is a big part of your work, sort yeah. of psychological thrillers and the, and the tension in your, your, your previous book, Watching You, Then She Was Gone. Yeah. It's almost tension in the title from, from the very start. Yeah, I mean, I started off writing romantic comedies back in the day. <laughs> um, and with a romantic comedy, you're, obviously you're still using words to write a book, um, but you can be a lot, a lot freer and easier with your plotting and what have you. And you can be very character-led. Um, and I very gradually, organically moved across to the darker side and started writing psychological thrillers properly about five years ago. Um, and I still... I can't not be character-led. It's still, for me, it's all about mm -hmm. the people in the story and how they feel and what motivates them. Um, and I always like to have more than one perspective. I usually have three or four points of view because I want to know what everybody's thinking. Unlike Mick, who doesn't want to get into his guy's head, I really want to get into their heads <laughs> and not just see what they're um, doing and saying, but what they're thinking and why they're doing what they're doing. And it's interesting because, Ellie, your career path, you, you, you've written in different genre as well, and as we've said, with a different name, you came up with a different persona as a writer to, to present that work. Yeah, I mean, I, like Lisa, I, I wrote sort of, I, I guess, sort of romantic fiction as Domenica de Rosa, which, you know, is my real name, but also sounds completely made up yeah. <laughs> and, and sounds like a, a romantic fiction writer, which maybe influenced my decision to be. But I remember actually 
but one of the first things I ever used to write was um, Starsky and Hutch, uh, episodes of Starsky and Hutch. Does anyone remember yeah, Starsky oh, and yeah, Hutch? Yeah, I love it. And I used to write, I suppose, fan fiction, Starsky and Hutch fan <laughs> fiction. Wow. And I would write it. And um, at school, people would read it, like it would pass around the class at school. And um, I remember I wrote an episode and I killed Starsky, because, you know, well, <laughs> <laughs> How many copyright infringements <laughs> were going on there? I mean, what can you do with them, really? You have to kill them. So I killed Starsky, who was my favourite, actually. And obviously, Hutch was really sad, and I remember this going. <laughs> I remember this going round the class, and um, people started to cry, and I liked that. Uh, so I um, remember that feeling, I guess, of of thinking, you know, oh, and a bit like what Mick says, you know, it's the order in which you put words on a page. It can make you laugh or it can make you cry, and that's a an amazing thing, really, isn't it? It really is. It really is. Which brings with it. Um, so a deal of responsibility, because yes. you are going to take your readers on a, on a journey of, of emotions, and you're responsible for what they experience, aren't you? Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes and, and yes. It's, it's, a, it's a lovely thing, because uh, people experience those emotions with you, and they write to you to tell you whether they're happy or sad, and, and that's a beautiful thing. But it is also it feels you know, quite a responsibility, you know, as well, because you know the story you're going to write might not be the story everyone wants you to write, but as, as Lisa said, I think you can only write the story that you're going to write. Yeah. Well, well, your first published book, or yeah. actually your first time of writing, um, wasn't Starsky and Hutch. No. <laughs> um, but it was for a bet, to yes. win a bet. Yes. I was very drunk. It was four o'clock in the morning. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I've been working as a secretary and just lost my job and I was on holiday. And uh, somebody asked me what I was going to do when we got back to London. And I said I was going to sign up with some temping agencies. And she said, you know, sometimes being made redundant can be a, a really good opportunity to change the direc direction of your life. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you've always wanted to do? And I found myself saying, well, I've always wanted to write a book which is the first time I'd ever uttered those words, or even, I think, consciously thought those words. But I was very drunk, and it was 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> um, and she said, I'll tell you what, if, you, if you've, you know, you've got some redundancy money and you've got a little time now, why don't you just write three chapters, and if you do that, I'll take you out for dinner to your favourite restaurant. So I did, I wrote the three chapters. She took me out for dinner to my favourite restaurant. And that was my first novel, that was Ralph's Party, which was a, a huge bestseller in 1999, so... Oh. Thanks, thanks, Yasmin. <laughs> <laughs> You're like Mary Shelley, aren't you? You know, suddenly deciding to... Uh... Yeah, yeah. What, what was the trigger for yourself? Did, did any of you have a similar trigger to start writing, a life change, or, or what made you want... Oh, mine's a very sad story. You might want oh. to get your handkerchiefs out. Oh, make them um, cry. Well, I, 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 I wrote my first book when I was 17. I was going through a Terry Pratchett phase, and if anybody likes the Discworld series, uh, you know, when you read it, you think... How easy is this? I can do this. Yeah. Um, but obviously it's not. He makes it look easy. But anyway, I finished a sci-fi comedy mashup, sent it off to a few agents, got the rejection letters back, um, you know, which uh, I hadn't expected because I thought that I would now be a best-selling author and buy my, <laughs> buy my first Bentley, etc. But, uh, you know, I spent uh, the next 20-odd um, years, wherever I was working in the world, writing books, sending them into agents, uh, six more rejected novels before I got a four-book deal for this for this current series. So perseverance, I think, uh, is the message there. 
I wrote my first novel a bit when I was 11. I wrote a, a crime novel. You've always got upstage. I know. I'm sorry, but, but I haven't got an elephant in my book, so you know. And it was yeah. So it was a crime novel, and it was called The Hair of the Dog, which must have been something my parents talked about. I, think. <laughs> um, I don't know that I knew. I don't know if I knew that at the time, but um, and that you know didn't ever get published or, or do anything. So. And although I'd always wanted to be a writer, as, as you said, Ian, I did go into publishing, and that kind of made me forget that I wanted to be a writer. So I didn't write what became my first published book until I was on maternity leave, expecting my twins, who are now 21. So mm. 21 years ago, that, that did prompt me to, to write. That was the opportunity. That was, you. yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the mechanics um, of, of, your, of your writing, um, the, the, the research and the preparation involved in it. You say Terry Pratchett there, it's, it's, it's harder than it looks. And it's, we all know it's much harder than it looks. There will be aspiring writers mm -hmm. as well as um, avid readers in the audience. Um, let's go Lisa. Yeah. Um, how do you come up with plot, characters, what yeah. comes first? How no. does it work? Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> I'm awful. Nobody should listen to me. I'm a terrible writer <laughs> when it comes to the practicalities. Um, it's different, with, you know, for example, with this, it was the, the lady in the shower block. Uh, I wrote another book that was about a man I saw outside the tube station wearing a sandwich board for a comedy night. Uh, sometimes I just, oh, so location, I, 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 would, I get an urge to write a book set in a northern village, a uh, fishing village or something. So it's, it, it could be any, but absolutely not, but not anything. The plot. No, no, not the plot. Not the plot, no. Those big what-if questions, which are the, uh, the, you know, the basis of a lot of psychological thrillers, I, I don't have those big what-if questions. Um, I have a person I want to write about or a house I want to write about or a, just a feeling I want mm -hmm. to write about, and then I make the... I make the what-if question... Well, basically, I write a 1,000 words a day. I don't do any plotting. I don't do any planning. I don't write any notes. I haven't got a clue. If my, <laughs> if my publisher asks me to give them a synopsis, I freeze and I panic because I can't put it into words until I've written it down a 1,000 words a day. I don't know what I am writing until I'm writing it. It's awful. I wouldn't recommend no, it as a way of writing a book to anyone. You're fascinating. You're a bad it's person. Terrifying. I am. It's just, it's, it's you should terrifying. be teaching creative writing. No, yeah. I wish. Can you imagine? <laughs> I think you should. How yeah. does that compare, contrast? Mick, what's your... I'm not Team Lisa. I right? have <laughs> a similar kind of approach. I don't research. Um, I write every day. Uh, I start with character and see what happens. I mean, I have a few vague ideas about what kind of situation I want to put them in and what the overarching theme is going to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the details of the plot get sorted out on the wing, as it were. That, that's what the writing... Mm -hmm. they, they happen while I'm writing. High five. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't know the end when you start? I might know the end, but it's usually more or less the, the, um, the ending mm -hmm. that, I, that I stick with right from the beginning. But the route to the end goes all mm -hmm. over the place, yeah. places I didn't know it was going I'm to. sensing we might find a contrast at the far end of the panel. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, I, 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 He's got I, an elephant guide. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I plan meticulously. I have to know the ending, and then you go back and you, and you populate the book with, with suspects, and, and you try and derive a plot that, uh, that interests people. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's crime fiction. You're, you're all readers, we're all readers, and what draws you into crime fiction, as well as good characters and settings, is the fact that you have a mystery that you want to solve uh, during the course of this book. And for me, a lot of that is... I try and tackle themes with each of the books, and a lot of that is from my personal experience. So, for instance, the fourth book in the series was called Murder at the Grand Raj Palace. 
and it was based on the murder of an American, a very wealthy American, at India's most iconic hotel. I've called it the Grand Raj Palace, but it's, it's based on the Taj Palace Hotel in Mumbai, which some of you may have, may have heard of. Now, I, I went to this hotel many times uh, when I was living there, and I came across a, a particular story about it, which I thought would, would make very good uh, for, a, for a sort of background plot. Um, so the, the Taj Palace, for those of you who don't know, has been around since 1899, and it was built by India's uh, richest man at the time. His name was Tata. And he built it because one day he tried to walk into what was then India's most iconic hotel called the Watsons. And the Watsons in Mumbai was a colonial hotel, and it was run by the British. And uh, when he tried to enter the hotel, he was stopped at the door, and he was uh, unfortunately told that uh, dogs and Indians are not allowed entry. And bearing in mind, he's India's richest man at the time. So he vowed, so the story goes, to build a hotel more opulent than anything the British had ever seen. And that's what he did. And over the last century, anybody who's anybody who comes to Mumbai stays at the Taj Hotel. So, you know, from famous movie stars of the 20s to the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Obamas, the Clintons. Um, and it's well worth, if you ever go to Mumbai, it's well worth having a look because in the lobby they have this wonderful exhibition of photographs of, of all of these wonderful stars who signed these pictures and, and been photographed at the Taj. But for me, I thought it would make a wonderful setting for a sort of closed room mystery. It's dead American. Chopra gets called in to discreet, discreetly investigate. So it turns into a kind of an Agatha Christie-style story, but maybe with a bit more elephants than she would have. <laughs> <laughs> and you're clearly passionate about the messages that you are looking to spread. <coughs> yeah. But, and, but the research is meticulous with you. You have spreadsheets and all sorts. Don't I you? do. I do. Um, as I said, I did my first degree was in accounts, so <laughs> yeah. I can't. I can't get away. Accountants are very interesting people. <laughs> said, said nobody ever. But. <laughs> and you can draw on the resource of your colleagues at the Crime Science Unit. At it's really useful is... because. So, for instance, I did a short story in the series last year, and so I went to one of my forensic anthropologist colleagues, and I said. Sean, I really need to know how to burn a body alive. Which is not the kind of thing that you use when you're opening a conversation, usually with your colleagues. No, you don't uh, want she that did lead me through the process of She did lead me through the process of what happens when you burn someone alive. Yeah. Not that I've tried it. <laughs> Ellie, you, you have a useful research resource. Well, uh, my husband is an archaeologist, but I can say, with, you know, with, with a lot of love in my heart, that he's absolutely no use at all. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we've been happily married 27 years, but he's never read any of my books, let alone... Really? Uh, no, no. Let even the one dedicated to him. <gasps> I know, I know. But she was here to hear that. But um, so, so absolutely, he's absolutely no help. Um, but what he has done, to be fair, he's helpful in other ways. He's very good at fixing the Christmas lights and stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's all right then. Yeah, you know. Absolutely. That makes everything all right. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. You know, shout out for, for the marriage bond. Um, but, but he has influenced me. Uh, he has uh, introduced me to some archaeologists who have been helpful. So I've got two particular archaeologists yeah. who are both women. Uh, Lucy Sibbon, who is a very well-known forensic archaeologist, and another one, um, Lindsay Harvey, who was working at UCL, actually, mm, yeah. um, and is a bones expert. So she's kind of my Ruth, and a bit like with Vaz, I'll say, oh, Lucy, I want to a sign that there's been cannibalism in these bones and she'll say, ooh, pot polish which is a real thing and that, that happens in, in the chalk pit where, where Ruth sees bones that she thinks there's sign of cannibalism so for me I, I start uh, and I also I'm sitting between Mick and Baz and I think I'm between them in terms of my what sort of working um, practices as well because I plot a little bit 
I usually start with the place or this sort of archaeological discovery. Um, and I kind of know what's going to happen at the end, but I don't... And I've, with the last two books, so with The Stone Circle and The Stranger Diaries, have kind of been my most complex plots, and they're the only ones where I haven't had a written plan. Usually I do have a written plan, but for some reason, with the last two, I haven't. And, and I've sort of managed to... But like Lisa, I write a thousand words a day. Yeah. High five. High five. <laughs> And Lisa, you allow yourself to be quite flexible in your yeah. writing, don't you? I mean, you mean in terms of my endings, or no? Yeah, well, you, yeah. I mean, you've written alternative endings. Yeah. To, oh, yes. To one or two, haven't yes. You? Yeah, I delivered. I delivered a manuscript um, in which um, I'd engineered a happy ending for one of my characters, and uh, my editor took me out for a drink to butter me up to suggest that it shouldn't be a happy ending. And I should rewrite it with an absolutely tragic right. um, make them cry ending, which I think it did for quite a lot of people. Um, yeah, and I was, I was up for that. I was very, very, very <laughs> positive about that. And she was absolutely correct. Um, but you know, when I'm writing, I'm, I'm never entirely sure who the baddie is. or I've, I generally know who the dead people are. Um, but I don't know. I don't necessarily have a commitment to who might have been the perpetrator of the crime until I get very close to the end. But so you're disciplined... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, right at... I'm, not, I'm certainly yeah. not giving anything away, but right at the end of the family upstairs, there's a, like, <gasps> moment. You, you mean know, literally that last... Literally, the last... Yes. I had two double vodkas. By the way, the very, the <laughs> very, very, very end. I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, because I'd finished it, and I thought, that was a bit pat. That was a bit oh. of a happy ending. And, and I, I was I, all for... Yeah, I had so two double vodkas, because I thought, there's something in here. There is some, there's, there's the moment I can pull out of this that's just going to give it that proper... Yes, it really make is. them feel Absolutely. ending. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And make yeah, shiver. two double vodkas, found it. There it was. You, yes, yeah. yeah. You <laughs> nailed that. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> nailed that. Um... Mick, um, are you a lark or an owl? Oh. <laughs> More of a dormouse, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I used to be an owl. I used to have to, um, when, when I was working full-time, um, I, I was very time-poor, and my writing routine was, was for the evening, not late evening, but it was the end of the working day. Um, whereas now, I... I, I nap a lot. I do a lot of power naps. <laughs> Disco naps, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> the correct expression for okay. And this discipline of writing a certain number of words or at least writing for a certain amount of time every day, is that... Discipline isn't the word I would use for anything that I do during the course of the day. <laughs> I'm habituated to producing a certain amount of work. I go for about 700, 700 words and I'm, I'm fine with that. When I, was, um, when I had the day job and I had this very strict routine, I was aiming at 350 words a day. So I figure if I'm doing twice that now, the rest of the time's my own. <laughs> <laughs> um, when each of you write, do you prefer to be surrounded by noise or by silence? Well, I write in coffee shops. So, yeah, okay. noise, very much. Yeah. Silence. Well, I, I listen to music, but it's very quiet music. Total mm. silence. Yeah. No, no music. Focus. Silence, yeah. Well, if I'm not writing at home, I'm usually writing on a cricket pitch because I play a lot of cricket, but I'm not very good at it. So I well, tend to get concentrating I tend to get out very early. So then, you know, I, I sit on the sidelines with my with my laptop. Um, the only other option is to sort of hurl abuse at the bowler, but uh, it doesn't really. <laughs> is that, get you, is, that, is that right? You find good thinking time. Things come to you, and you make a quick note. Yeah, it's or? great. I mean, there's no there's nowhere more pleasant than a cricket pitch. Is that why there's so much sitting around in cricket? Exactly. <laughs> because it's meant for writers. Oh, there you are. <laughs> now I'm starting to understand There's even cricket. a special yeah. cricket team called the Authors' Eleven. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Now I'm starting to understand it. Thank do you, you not find distractions, though, Lisa, when you're in a coffee shop? Do you not find yourself... Uh, no, I, 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 it's white noise to me. I like it. Even, like, babies crying. Um, the only thing that really, really breaks my focus and makes me wish that I wasn't there is, I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound sexist, but loud, loud man on phone is when someone yeah, gets their phone out and starts having a very loud business conversation about their business. Yeah. Um, that, that, messes, that messes with my head. But everything they else... They go straight in as a character that's not going to last long. Yeah, yeah, they? yeah. <laughs> Dead. Yes. Yeah. yeah, right. You're in, pal. Um, right. Uh, you um, love to engage with your readers and your audience. Social media is a thing that you, uh, you get involved in yeah. quite a bit, isn't it? Ellie, you... You get involved online. Vaz, you tweet about nothing but cricket. <laughs> um, certainly for the last two or three weeks anyway, with England's World Cup win, which is desperate to talk Hooray. about. And have a chat with you afterwards about that. Mix into cricket as well. You're not really somebody who does an awful lot of the, uh, the social media stuff, Nick, are you? I don't do any at all, but... Um I gather, Sarah Hillary told me this, this morning that, uh, that my shoes now have their own Twitter feed. Can we see these? There you go. Oh, yeah. what's the, what's the handle? What's the Twitter handle for your shoes? I don't know. You're asking him what no, the Twitter handle is. No, it was a, it was a, it was a mystery. Know. It was a mystery who the oh. shoes belong to. I've just given it away, by the way. Oh. Um, yeah, people so were being asked to guess. Is it Harrogate shoes? Is it... We need a hashtag before the end of the session, folks. We need a hashtag Harrogate Gate. Okay, well, we said you like to interact. It's your opportunity, folks. Um, who would like to ask any questions to any of our esteemed panel? Lady next to you there, so you haven't got to go far. Okay. We've got a microphone in, a, yes. in a, okay. a thing that we throw around the room, a catch box. Ellie, so. I've been dying to know, did you know... At the end of the book, when the baby was coming, who was the father? Oh. Did you know? <laughs> had you decided? Well, I obviously won't say the answer, but yes. You I, did? I, I did know, yes. And it's not, it's not always the case. I mean, in terms of sort of Ruth, Nelson and Michelle. So Ruth and, and Nelson and Michelle is Nelson's wife. Their sort of love triangle. I, I haven't always known. And I still don't totally know how that's going to play out. But I did know that one, yes. Do you feel you have more freedom with this love triangle business, given that your husband doesn't read your books? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a very good, it's a very good question, Mick, yes. Later. Thanks. I think he's probably Ruth, and I'm probably Nelson. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> more questions, folks. There's one over there. Ready to catch? Let's see your cricket oh, throw. Oh. There you Whoa. go. Well done. And appropriate, this is a question for Vaz. It's just... Um, Obviously, I'm displaying a complete lack of knowledge of your work, but with a one-year-old elephant, I presume it's contemporaneously getting older as you're writing more books. You know, that's uh, one of the two questions that I get mo asked most often. <laughs> the, the, uh, the other one is, is anything bad going to happen to this elephant? I've actually been threatened on stage by people <laughs> wanting to assure themselves that nothing bad is going to happen to the elephant. Um, no, the elephant doesn't, uh, doesn't grow older. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a character device. For me, the elephant is uh, a symbol of India. It's a metaphor. It's not, yeah, I don't expect you to take the elephant too seriously. As I said, it allows me to add some charm and, and some humor, and occasionally pops its head around the door. But Chopra is a serious man um, exploring serious crimes in a, in a serious, serious country. P uh, when, the, when the books first came out, they, the, the national reviewers all compared it the, the series to the number one ladies detective agency, which is, which is great for me, and, and there are definite similarities, and I've met 
Alexander McCall Smith a couple of years ago. He, he was doing an event in London and he heard that I was in the audience, so he invited me backstage for a chat. A uh, lovely man. Um, and he'd, he'd read the first one and said some lovely things about it. Uh, in my own opinion, they're slightly grittier in tone over, over the course of the series and Chopra's character being a bit more uh, sort of, uh, bit, you know, very rigid about uh, justice and the pursuit of justice in a country where, unfortunately, if you have money, if you have influence, you can get away with the worst sorts of crimes up to and including murder and there are famous cases of, of famous celebrities who've, who've gotten away with just that, so. Thank you. Next question. Oh. There you go. You can see all the hands. <laughs> go to your left there. Go on. Oh, that was just a pass. We won't throw it. <laughs> can I thank Mick for a fantastic series of novels? Um, I'm just interested to know if you're looking forward to Peter Judd arriving in number 10 and whether he's going to make us laugh or cry. <laughs> Difficult one to answer. Mm. Difficult one to answer. Um, I think it was in London Rules I, I wrote a line that went something like, one of the unintended consequences of Brexit was the way it had elevated to positions of undue prominence any number of nasty little toe rags. Oh. And, <laughs> and anybody, anybody who saw or read about um, the, the behaviour of the, the newly elected British MEPs uh, at the European Parliament a couple of weeks ago when they turned their backs while Ode to Joy was being performed will have felt the same revulsion, disgust and shame that I felt. And a lot of that is going to be carried over when if that seems very likely, we have a new Prime Minister next week. Those are going to be my main feelings, I think. Will they be reflected in the fiction that I write? Do you know? I think they might. <laughs> <laughs> you know where to go for that. Absolutely, mate. Um, a few more questions? Question for Mick. Uh, when you started writing the Slough House series, did you realise that Jackson Lamb was going to be such a prominent character? No, um, he was only ever going to be a, one of a number of characters in the book. I hadn't intended him to take over. In fact, if you look at the, the books and you know, the number of pages on which he appears, he, he is only a minor character, really. It's just that he kind of leaks over into the margins quite a lot. He's turned up to 11 when he appears, um, so he takes up a lot more space. He appears to take up more space than he actually does. I hadn't intended that to happen. Uh, I'm perfectly... Happy with it, though. I'm, I'm, I'm going with it, yeah. It wasn't it's intended to be a series. It was going to be one book. But I got to the end and thought, I'm enjoying this, so I carried on. <laughs> I can see a hand way back. So the this other is characters be... talk about that, You can they? kick it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's another microphone. What a shame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's all right, Ian. Um, question for Vaz. Um, will you ever mm, set looking... any of your Chopra books outside Mumbai, but within Greater India? Well, um... In between the Bad Day at the Vulture Club, the current one that's just about to come out in August, and uh, the previous book, I was asked to write a novella, about 30,000 words. Uh, it's a digital novella, uh, and it's called um, Last Victim of the Monsoon Express. And this was my ode to um, not only Agatha Christie's uh, famous novel, but also to the Indian rail railways, which, you know, if you go to India, you've got to go on one of these <coughs> transcontinental railways because they're just so wonderful to, to, to be, a, be aboard. And the, and the story is set, is set um, outside of Mumbai because the train travels up to Delhi, then to Amritsar, and then over to the border uh, with Pakistan. So for those of you who know your history, uh, India and Pakistan were divided <coughs> during partition. And ever since, they've been noisy neighbors. They, you know, they've, they've fought a number of wars and have been at daggers drawn. 
Uh, and so the purpose of this book was to have a, a politician murdered on this, uh, this train, which was meant to really be a, a compromise train with India and Pakistan reaching a, a detente, which doesn't actually happen because somebody gets murdered. And Chopra happens to be on this train, and he has to solve the mystery uh, during that. But India is such a vast country. People think of it as one country, but uh, realistically speaking, India is... Uh, 10 different countries. The north is completely different to the south. The east is different to the west because there's different languages, different cultures, different types of behavior and norms throughout uh, Indian society. So for me, there's an endless series of stories, whether I'm writing a Chopra or, or different kinds of books set on the subcontinent. There's, a, there's an endless uh, sort of canvas to explore. Thank you for the question. Uh, hello there. Yesterday, there was a panel on pace in fiction. And we talked a little bit on the panel about the difference between pace and suspense. And given that this is a session about emotions, whether, it, whether it's laughter or crying, I wondered if you might be able to tell us a little bit about how, instead of writing jokes, you write a light-hearted tone, or instead of writing shocks, you get suspense in, those sort of more long-burning feelings than just the moments that you've talked about. Mm. Interesting question. Oh, that's a good, good. Lisa, you want to? No? Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a great, what a great, what a great question. How I interesting. I think about that one. Um, and I don't know why I'm answering it. No. <laughs> a, really, a really great question. But I think, I think actually um, humour, and I th think so many crime novels, you know, have humour in them. And I think it's because it's all part of the same thing, isn't it? And I think there is a sense where you have something very suspenseful and then, <clears> and then you, um, you know, then you lighten the tone and then... You, you have to give your reader time to breathe, don't you? And then you can ratchet mm. up the suspense again. And I think a great example of that's in Macbeth, you know, where the, the, where the murders are happening, and then, you know, <laughs> in comes the comic porter with his, his knock-knock jokes, you know? And, and I always think there's, there's a great bit in Macbeth I'd where... I'd, I'd never thought of Macbeth as a comic Well, you know, yeah, well, <laughs> there you go. Um, but there is a good bit in Macbeth, actually, where I think it's Lennox, one of those thankless parts that the, the course actor has. And, you know, he has this long speech about how these terrible things have gone wrong and how the sun and moon are in out of alignment and all Duncan's horses are eating each other. There's this long, long speech about how the world is going wrong. And at the end of it, Macbeth says, ah, it was a rough night. <laughs> and, um, and I think that's meant to be funny. <laughs> I think you're right about the pace. And I think what we said before about make them laugh, make them cry. But if you make them wait, you will make them feel. Mm. Yeah. And rather than that short, sharp shot. Yeah, and, if, and a comedian you, would do yeah. that, wouldn't they? They'd make you wait. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, 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 crime, the, the crime, crime fiction itself is just now subdivided into so many genres across the spectrum. But I think the one thing they all have in common is that you have to have suspense as a thread throughout. Because without suspense, without mystery, without something for you to solve, it really isn't a crime novel. It's, no. it's, it's something else. Uh, so I think we always start with that in mind. I think so. I sat through much of that panel and was at the back nodding my head at a lot of what they were saying. Particularly uh, when they were talking about sentence formation and the, the changes that you make in order to make readers read faster. I mean, shorter sentences, more white space on the page, all of that. I've written uh, a couple of novels more in a noirish tinge than my Slough House series, and one of the first things I did was decide there'll be no semicolons in this book. <laughs> when you take the semicolons out, the whole structure of the book, for the, the, way I, the whole structure of the way I write changed. The sentence became much more compact. The paragraphs became shorter. The chapters became shorter. The book became shorter. And it 
moves much more fast as a as Well, a how result. many semicolons were you using? Yeah, I, I can barely send a text message without including a semicolon. You can barely send a text yeah. message. <laughs> True. That, that structure is really interesting, isn't it? Because the number of chapters, yeah. for example. And that's one of the, the, the good things about this thousand words a day that myself and so many other authors I know use is it's just the right amount to, it can be a short chapter or it can be half of a longer mm. chapter. Um, but then you've got a day or two and it's very structured to just get that arc perfectly correct for that chapter. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, which I find really, really, if I was like writing 200 words one day and then 2,000 words the next day, I feel like I might lose that. Mm -hmm. And that's a really good way of holding on to the suspense as well, holding on mm. to your little secrets and knowing exactly the moment to... There's also, when it comes to the grammar and punctuation, a, a difference between writing for the word to be read rather than to be spoken. And so much of your work now is conveyed also, for example, in audio books. Mm -hmm. do, do, you, do you listen to a voice as you're writing it, or do you just imagine somebody reading it mm. individually? I've been, as I've been a listening reader. to voices in my head since <laughs> Well, it's, yeah, it, I'm fascinated by it, because actually, where possible, I've also downloaded your work as audiobooks, and I've been reading and listening. And sometimes the, the voice is, is as I would have expected. Sometimes it's slightly different. It's, it's obviously a personal choice of yours. I guess you choose the person who narrates mm. your work. No? 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 no. That's no. not how it works. No. Oh, Ian, I, Ian, I, Ian, Ian. I've been, given, oh, really? I've been given a choice of two. I've been, <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah here's, here's a link to two voices. Right. Which one do you think is the right voice for you? I'm delighted with my reading. He's fabulous, yeah. but yeah. Was, I have no part yeah. to play. But you would write the spoken but word differently, wouldn't you? Yeah. 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 I, I find it very, very embarrassing to listen yeah. to my books on audio, and I don't know. I was going to ask. Do, do you ever listen? Mm. Who, who listens to their audiobooks? Because I can't. It makes no, me feel cringy. It's very it's like cringy. On a black I don't yeah. know why it is. I, mean, I, I love be. audiobooks. And I it's think, it's, I think that, uh, the growth reflects the fact that yes. a lot of people are now beginning to understand that there is a, there's a dynamic there and a joy that you get from listening to a book. I do it while I'm driving. Um, as opposed to normally I just like to have a proper book in my hands but um, you know, <laughs> while you're um, driving and, 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 <laughs> and, you're, you're absolutely right you, when we write I, I do have conversations with Chopra and I do on, uh, I think of him a certain way and, and his voice is a certain uh, style and then you know it comes out in the audio book, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't listen to the entire audio book again myself because I wrote it but um, I know that people do listen and they do like the fact that you know you've got this, this uh, creation being brought to life through, the, through this new mechanism so I so was wondering if anyone read their work aloud during the editing process. I know some writers do mm. that. I used to. Did you? But yeah, mm. I haven't done that for a long time. I can imagine you doing it in a very Shakespearean. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> yes, now you mention it. Yeah. <laughs> but not to your husband, no? Uh, no, no. That, <laughs> he's not that, interested. Yeah, no. he's not interested at all, no. Do you visualise your work? You, of course you visualise your work, daft question, but I'm now talking about film and television adaptations and things like mm. that. Do you... Do you mean do you visualise it while you're writing yeah. it and imagine it? As uh, imagine a, the scenes. I, ne I would never do that cynically, thinking, oh, if I write it like this, then I might get a mm. film deal. But yeah. sometimes it's really helpful inside my head to imagine it as a, as a scene change. Right. Um, yeah. To work out. If I, was, if, yeah, if I was watching this on the TV, what would be the nice, natural thing to happen next? And uh, yes, and I can be quite visual about that, but not in a cynical way. Mm -hmm. I don't think any writers um, cynically write. No, not, 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 not unless you're no. a screen, screenwriter. Yeah. Well, yes, yeah. without yeah. And you're particular I mean, for, for me, because my books, are, so I've been told, are very visual in nature, because India itself is such a visual, uh, sensory, uh, sensory place, it becomes quite easy. And because I've been there and, and stood there for 10 years, uh, I know what it's, uh, what it's like. Um, but I think it's all about creating certain sort of moments and things, especially the openings of books, mm. because, you know, your books open brilliantly uh, each time and, 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 you know, you get drawn into, 
into, a th into something. I mean, uh, with this book, um, it opens with the death of somebody from the Parsi community, which a lot of people had, had no idea what, what I was talking about when I first pitched this idea, but the Parsis are a very rich, very small community in India who came over from Persia, Iran, many, many uh, years ago, but they became incredibly uh, influential because they were working with the British and, they, and you know, the Tata, Tata industries, for example, they started by Parsis, but what intrigued me about them was that they don't bury or cremate their dead, like Muslims and Hindus. They leave them in a tower in the middle of Mumbai for vultures to eat. That's, that's their way of disposing of the dead. And of course, that causes problems with other people in the community around these so-called towers of silence. Uh, and for me, that is an intriguing sort of visual. Absolutely. Immediately, there's a visual that people have in their minds about these vultures oh, feasting I, on these dead I bodies. I did as I read it. Excarnation, yeah? yeah? It was the Excarnation. That which, which actually it, it, comes into your work a it little does, bit, yeah. doesn't it? Archaeologists, and the limo, zone. archaeologists call it sky burial. That's right. Yes. You know, and, and it's in quite a few cultures where the body is left out to be eaten yeah, by absolutely. animals or scavengers. Yeah. yeah, I found that so fascinating in your book, yeah. Baz. I had no uh, idea about yeah. it. Uh, and, like yours, and, and Mick begins brilliantly with this great sort of image of London seedy sort of <laughs> building where these, uh, these things are going on. With, with, and, and it's just amazing the way that you guys conjure up these images. The, the light and the shade yeah, and the dark absolutely. and the right. Any more questions, folks, before we conclude? Somebody with a microphone already there, yeah? Yeah. No, never mind. Oh. Oh, never gentleman, mind? Gentleman on the aisle. That's not a question. Never mind. Don't worry. It's good advice, though. They're feeling a bit hungry. A bit, bit hungry. Really Quick think. question for Ellie. You're justly famous for the Dr. Galloway books. I particularly enjoyed The Stranger Diaries. Mm. Are you planning a follow-up? Oh, thank you so much. I'm delighted you liked The Stranger Diaries. It was a lot of fun to do a standalone, and gothic fiction is, is a passion of mine. Well, I'm standing... I'm, I'm, it was meant to be a standalone, and I'm planning to do another standalone, but do you know what? I can't keep Harbinder Core out of the other standalone, yeah. so... Yeah. <laughs> thank you. So she will be in it. <laughs> Um, there is a quiz this evening. I'm told that if you are participating, Mick Heron is the man to have on your team. That's your speciality, Mick. My speciality? Is, is, you are a bit of a quiz Get, fiend. Getting the answers right is, is the <laughs> speciality. Oh, he's, he's being very modest. We were at uh, the Chipping Norton Literary Festival and we were put on the same team together uh, and, uh, uh, with a quiz run by Mark Billingham. And we ended up winning. We won because... Um, Mick got 80% of the questions right. However, that left us one point behind the leaders. I got one question right, oh. which gave us two points, <laughs> and therefore we won, and so I claim that I got the, the winning... <laughs> I, got, I got the winning runs Can, I, can I just say, I, I pride myself on being a fairly relaxed and laid-back <laughs> person, but not during a quiz, apparently, because on this very same night, uh, one of the other team members was a graphologist, somebody who does analysis of handwriting and tells you about your character. And I had been writing the answers down. And when we finished, I went to the loo and my partner handed the sheet to the graphologist and said, tell me about him. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I like to be in control. <laughs> and I got very tense during the music round. <laughs> the word Don't go killer. home with this man was essentially the <laughs> Folks, hopefully we have not made you cry. Um, we've made you chuckle and laugh a little. Um, I asked the panel if they had a joke they would like to finish with. 
Um, none of them do. <laughs> so in order to finish with a guaranteed laugh, they are now going to conga down the aisle for you, <laughs> which I suggested upstairs beforehand, and they were up for because they thought I was kidding. Yes. <laughs> so as they do, will you please show your collective appreciation for Ellie Griffiths, Lisa Jewell, Mick Heron, and Basim Khan. Thank you very much indeed, everybody. Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. Don't forget to rate and subscribe for this podcast. For more events, recordings, resources and information about our arts charity, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.